There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. It's Drive Live with Claire Sharrock and Sally Musa this evening for double zero one if you want to get in touch with the show. And uh, we're about to talk legal stuff. Legal Hour on Drive Live. Warm welcome to Ludmilla Yamalova, managing partner at HBL Yamalova and Plevka, here in the hot seat, as usual on a Monday, ready to answer any legal questions you might have. Hello, Ludmilla. Good to have you here, as ever. Good to be here, as always. 4001, of course, if you want to ask Ludmilla a question this evening. We've got plenty in already, so do get yours in quickly, as we do always run out of time, and we don't want you to miss out. Let's start, though, Ludmilla, with a topic that we have discussed with you, well, a lot over recent months. The UAE announced, of course, its intention to introduce value-added tax from January 1st, 2018, quite some time ago, but just last week finally saw the issue of the tax procedures law, which sets the foundations for the planned tax system, uh, regulating the administration and collection of taxes and redefining the role of the Federal Tax Authority. That's a mouthful, Miller. What actually does it mean what is new we've known it's coming for ages now there's a law what does it say it's a mouthful but it's just a tip of the iceberg because okay. <laughs> it's actually a lot more than that but it, the, the the name itself is pretty complicated but there was one word that you use that is that is fundamentally important to this discussion that is procedural law so this is only a procedural law it's not yet a transactional law and in any jurisdiction you have different types of laws one that sets up how to for example bring a case and then the other one actually the substance or the merits of, of a case and uh, and the basically the nuances of a particular claim. So this particular law, which is the federal law number seven of 2017, only relates to procedure. Uh, so therefore, in in relevant terms, it's not substantially different from what we've discussed in the past, uh, but it's just a lot more detailed. And I will tell you, for the purposes of our listeners, the details are a little, um, probably more than anybody wants to hear or cares to hear at this point. <laughs> Might take the whole and program. It's lot, it's, it would take the whole program, and it's a lot. It's very technical, so it's not really would be, it would not really be beneficial for to go through the, through the the details because they are a little uh, they are a little premature at this point because we don't really have the substantive law yet, which is really what everybody cares about. So, was it what you were expecting all these weeks when we've talked about? Well, we still haven't got the law yet. It's coming. It's coming. Is this what you expected to? be uh, released when it was released last week? I think by now we, we we actually expected to have both sets of laws or at least I think what what majority people are actually looking for or waiting for is actually the substantive law which sets out the percentage, which industries are going to be subject to what rate, the exemptions, the different types of the input and output tax, uh, tax which is, is what businesses are looking for in order to try to figure out how to adjust their accounting practices and how to restructure their businesses with that in mind. This particular law does not quite address that. And more importantly, it doesn't. It's not limited to the VAT. Remember what we're talking about, and what everyone is really expecting is the um, so the outline or the roadmap of what what is this VAT tax going to be all about and how it's going to take place. So, but this law is much broader than that. It's not just related to VAT. There's no mention of VAT, so therefore we can speculate what it means. But it's obviously drafted with a much longer future in mind, and that is in the event there will be other types of taxes that will be introduced in the future. Obviously, this framework. Uh, will be able to carry through 
also it's about the legislative amendments and introductions um, over the long haul. So, so it, the idea is that it's just it's a fundamental uh, the the legal framework. It's the idea of what uh, is going to be there in terms of, of how we're going to carry out taxes in this country. Because obviously there is no tax as it stands, but we do need a foundation. Absolutely. And that's what it is. It's a foundation. So um, some of the articles in relevant terms that are outlined is, for example, the language. And that will, the, and, and that will I'll tell you, that is one, uh, that was one provision that I paused because I'm not quite sure how it's going to be enforced because it says that the official language, any kind of document submitted to the tax authority will have to be in Arabic. Well, and just for, in the interest of completeness, because it's a short uh, article, let me kind of read what that means. And that's, it refers to tax returns, um, uh, data, information, records, and documents related to tax. Basically, and that's if, if you just take those few phrases, it means anything. And since taxes are going to be sub or paid for, and therefore all the documents will have to be submitted every quarter, uh, it's um, you know at least the, my interpretation that uh, that particular provision that everything was submitted to the tax authority will have to be in Arabic. This is a bit different, even though we know Arabic is the official language in the UAE. But this is a little bit different from what we heard from the Ministry of of um, Finance, which was that if you have a dispute. Any any uh, documents that you need to submit as part of the dispute, um, obviously the all the evidence, the backing up, and your claim and the claim itself will have to be in Arabic. But um, reading this provision myself now, it seems not to be limited to just that. It seems that to be, be limited to any just regular submissions, uh, tax submissions. I'm not sure if it will be enforced to, to that way, or at least if it will be enforced. Um, as such in the beginning, but I will tell you from a business perspective, if we are required to submit everything in Arabic, it will fundamentally reshape and change all of our bookkeeping and our, our accounting practices because this would mean that all the invoices uh, would have to be at least in dual languages, and that means whoever it is that issues invoices will need to speak Arabic. Uh, and um, there's a lot of companies where that isn't the case at the moment. Well, indeed, and also because the business, even though the official language is Arabic and, a, and we very much respect um, the language because this is the official language of the country. However, the business language in this country is, is English. And so a lot of the, the free zones, for example, the majority of the free zones, they're all in English and all the documents and all the corporate submissions and, uh, and any other regulatory documents that are submitted to the authorities, including the government authorities, uh, are in English. So this means that the majority of the businesses here are still uh, at least English speaking and therefore all the documents are English based so that um, that provision if it is enforced as as I read it right now it will um, it will it will fundamentally reshape um, the business community here so that is one provision that's that's in the law the other one obviously sets out the whole the tax uh, the federal tax authority and the role of the tax uh, authority um, and who will be uh, authorized a license as being the tax auditors it goes through the whole the audits and what that means and how often they will take place and the notices you see so it's very very nuanced very mm -hmm. technical so probably not very exciting for the listeners uh, but some of the other interesting things it talks about is um, uh, uh, tax agents and so it will be possible for companies for example to hire tax agents and we have talked about it in the past and that is uh, someone who is licensed will have to be licensed with the authority we don't know uh, whether that will require accounting or finance background uh, the law is drafted in the way that basically they just have to be accredited at an accredited university so presumably it could be even a, a, a lawyer or a law firm uh, could be uh, licensed as a tax agent and these agents will be able to represent businesses before the tax authorities 
case. So that's an interesting and perhaps relevant detail because for a lot of businesses, they may just want to retain these tax agents to help them with uh, submissions to the authority. Uh, then some of the other uh, relevant provisions are obviously penalties and what it is, what it will cost and what it will entail if somebody is found to have either violated uh, the law from an administrative standpoint or from you know, the more substantive st- standpoint that is misrepresenting. And the penalties can be quite severe, including, as expected, a prison sentence and a repayment of, um, uh, of the of the of the tax, uh, uh, no, not exceeding five times the value of what should have been paid. So in terms of the uh, penalty, so let's say if the authorities find that somebody misreported 100,000 dirhams worth of tax, they will have to be paid. The penalty, this is just commercial penalty, will have to be uh, not more than five times mm-hmm. of that, which is 500,000 dirhams, plus prison sentence, but doesn't quite specifically state in which case they will apply either either one of them or both. Um, there's also a provision, a provision about statute of limitation, which is as to how long authorities can bring a case against someone, and that's 15 years. Again, there's a lot more nuances, but in general terms, it's just, as, as Sally said, it's just the framework or the foundation for how taxes will be collected um, in this country and who will be the authority responsible for it, and um, um, agents and audits and, and a record keeping is also very important because businesses will be required to uh, to make some s- significant changes to their business um, record keeping and or I guess business record uh, management and keeping. So quickly before we move on, if uh, it doesn't mention VAT, what are we waiting for now? We're waiting for a second uh, um, amendment to be released or something extra to... It will be a different law. Yeah. So I mean, today, for example, we have the civil transactions law and we have the civil procedure law. So, I mean, this is... In, in most jurisdictions, you always have procedural law and then transactional law. Now, it sets out, for example, the various causes of action. Let's say, uh, you know, what is a contract? You know, definition of a contract and what you can do, how you interpret a contract and what you can do to enforce a contract. So that those kind of... Uh, clauses or claims or causes of action are addressed in the uh, transactional law and not procedural. So what we're waiting for for that uh, for is that the transactional okay. law. Now, I'm not sure if the transactional law will uh, when it is finally issued if will deal with VAT only or if it will similar to this procedural law we'll talk about law in general. Uh, and that is transactional tax law, and then later there'll be another amendment or some other kind of regulation that deals with VAT specifically. So not quite sure, but certainly we'll it is. Yeah, yeah, it will be the transactional law. When it, Previously, when we've attended the Ministry of Finance briefings, uh, we've um, heard the something sometime around this summer or at the end of the summer, there will be some law. It could be that they might have been referring to this procedural law. Uh, with regards to the the next law, it just remains to be seen. But we're nearing January 2018, and that's the date by which we're supposed to start paying VAT. So presumably, if we're still going through with that date, it would be sometimes the next two or three months because one of the other relevant uh, deadlines that we did hear from the Ministry of Finance was October was the last mandatory deadline for businesses to, to start to start registering as a taxable person uh, with the authority. So that's 
coming very soon. It'll be upon us very soon. You're right. Well, as soon as we do get any updates or any further new law, of course, I'm sure we'll have you in to talk about it and try and shed some light on it. Thank you for that. Okay, uh, questions coming in, lots of them, 4001 if you want to add your 04423 if you want to call the studio and talk to Ludmilla. Um, and we've already got, uh, well, plenty to ask her. That's all coming up next. This is Drive Live on Dubai Eye 103.8. Legal Hour on Drive Live. It is the Legal Hour. We have Ludmilla Yamalova with us. We are talking all sorts of things. We've covered VAT already. We're going to be talking shortly about the importance of always reading your contract, whatever it's for. But now we're going to get to some of your questions. Lots of them coming in, as always, this afternoon. 4001, if you'd like to add yours to the mix. You can call us as well, 04423 Or use the free Messenger app, of course. Uh, here's one. No name on this one, Ludmilla. Um, can allowance is be deducted from my salary when I take annual leave even though it's stipulated in my employment contract? In short, no and this is because that's just against the law and therefore any contracts or any documents that purport to, um, uh, to override the law are invalid. So in other words employers or no, no one actually is allowed to override the law so any documents that somehow invalidate what's in the law are just are not enforceable so in other words, no. Uh, one here that's probably related to the VAT discussion we were having, having, Ashar says, can a company work without an agent or is it mandatory to have one? We're assuming it came in while we were talking about VAT, so we're assuming he's talking about a tax agent. Uh, if that's the case, then absolutely yes. Um, companies are not required to have a tax agent, so um, you can appoint, you can appoint anybody from the company to work with the federal authority without the agent and the agents are there just for convenience. Uh, another one from EJ saying uh, we were talking about the fact that we may be looking at having uh, all of the documents and all of uh, everything that's related to VAT needs to be available in Arabic. You were saying that earlier. Um, and uh, EJ is saying that's why legal translators are there. No need to have dual invoices or make bookkeeping in Arabic. But I'm not sure that legal translators will be able to uh, to properly translate all of that information. Don't you also need somebody who is well-versed in tax, who is an accountant, who understands what's going on to actually to check and see that everything uh, is the way it should be? Absolutely. And there are several aspects to that um, the particular comment. Uh, legal translators, in theory, uh, would certainly be valuable and would therefore avoid uh, for companies to have their own Arabic-speaking accountants. Uh, but it sounds, it's, it sounds easier than it is actually in practice. And that's because, let's face it, any kind of translation from one language to another is difficult. And Arabic is not an easy language, especially when you're translating from English. And therefore, there's a lot that often goes missing or lost in translation. That's just a matter of effect with any language, but in particular with Arabic. And uh, from experience, legal translations here still require... A review of uh, those translations and confirmation they actually were translated correctly and obviously in most cases we work with legal translations and of legal documents and therefore those documents by their nature are a lot more complicated and a lot more complex and therefore a lot more nuanced in terms of translations but I will tell you it's it it's difficult to find translators who are reliable so in our practice for example what we always do is before any translations are stamped or finalized by a legal translator we have 
have drafts sent to us first and we review them before we authorize them uh, to finalize uh, that translation only because in our experience there have been a lot of a lot of nuances that are not caught um, uh, you know in time and we've seen submissions made to to court where things are completely in reverse that were stamped by legal translators so it, it's it's easier said than done and therefore as Sally correctly said relying on legal translators in this case is not as reliable as um, uh, we might want at least at this point in time and then there's another nuance and that is one of, of cost and just effort uh, if you have to submit everything to legal translators such as for example receipts and you may have a business may submit receipts that come from other jurisdictions from other countries so imagine every single piece of paper may have to if it if it is required that we translate uh, every single one of those it's just it's it's going to be costly and it's going to be time consuming um, once again it's certain things have been done and and today when we submit documents to court we have to do uh, to do all that but it's you know, court cases are sort of extraordinary uh, circumstances um, but if it's something required as part of a normal uh, course of business it may become quite complex and time consuming and costly no matter your preferred communication, stay in touch with Drive Live only on Dubai Eye 103.8. It is Drive Live and it's the Legal Hour. Legal Hour on Drive Live. Ludmila Yamalova, managing partner at uh, Yamalova and Plevka, is with us, taking your questions, lots of them coming in. Um, and we're going to go straight to the phones, actually, Ludmila. We've got Han on the line. He's having a uh, landlord dispute. Uh, good afternoon to you, Han. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks, Thanks so for taking my call. Oh, great to have you on. You're through to Ludmila. What's your issue? Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's a bit complicated. I will try to make it as short as possible. 31st of May, my contract was supposed to expire. As per my contract, it says that I have to, before the end of the contract, I have to give a three-month notice. So anytime. Uh, what I did was from February, I started approaching my landlord. He did not provide me his address, so I did not have an address where I could sit, send a notice. I called him. He used to take my call and said, I will call you back. He would never talk to me. I sent him SMSs that I'm going to vacate. I sent him WhatsApp messages that I'm giving you notice, but he would never reply. Once he came to the compound and I approached him and he just closed his car window and he left. The guy didn't absolutely want to talk to me. So I then went to Rera and then Rera, uh, after one month, and then Rera told me that, you know, they tried to contact him, got his address, and uh, this guy absolutely refused that, you know, they, that I didn't approach him. So then through the notary public, I sent him a notice. But that was around two months before the end of the contract. Uh, now I have moved into another accommodation. I have been trying to contact this guy to somehow hand over the keys and, you know, and to, to finish off this. I have done, I have closed my RERA, uh, my DEVA, everything. But this guy is not approachable. I again went to RERA. And then I went to the, it, the, my case went to the arbitration committee and they tried to contact him and he's again, he's refusing. He's saying that, you know, he didn't get notice uh, at the right time and then I need to pay him for the full year. Uh, I just want to understand that where do I really stand with this? Because I just want to get over with this, but it's not ending. Uh, sure. Well, it sounds like, first of all, you've done what you needed to do uh, to protect your interest and to reserve your rights. Uh, number one, and that is, is to serve the landlord with notice. 
Unlike the previous practice, uh, the Rent Committee has now changed its uh, practice with regards to the form of notice. In the past, the notice had to be served uh, through the Notary Public, and uh, it, had, it, it, the, it, it was sort of an official document. As of recently, the Rent Committee does not, no, no longer requires that level of formality. Instead, it just needs to prove uh, a proof that, that the person has been, um, has been notified, however that might be. Um, so in your case, if you have... SMSs, you have WhatsApps. I mean, that in itself is sufficient proof uh, that, uh, the, that the other party was notified. And there isn't any f- uh, formality requirement in terms of the uh, the substance or the content of that notice. As long as you have at least one WhatsApp or one SMS that uh, tells the landlord that you are moving out, um, then you're covered. So that's with regards to the notice. Uh, so, therefore, legally speaking, you're covered. Uh, now, uh, with regards to giving away the, the keys, I mean, that obviously that's that's more in the interest of the landlord uh, than you. Uh, I would assume that it sounds like, based on what you've said, you've kind of uh, written off the deposit because that's usually what the tenants expect and what they why they want to do things, uh, closing uh, things finally and correctly with the landlord because they want that deposit back. It sounds like in your case, you might have already written it off given uh, the behavior of your landlord. Um, so you, for all intents purposes, you have closed the case and you've moved on. Uh, therefore, if the landlord wants anything from you, the landlord will now have to file a, a case. So they can want whatever they want. So if he wants a full year rent, well, then he has to claim that rent through the rent committee. Uh, unless he has your checks, and that's one thing that I worry about most with um, with you know, in these kind of relationships. Uh, so if he does not have your post-dated checks for the next year, then you, in practical terms, you don't really need uh, to worry about it right now. And if the landlord wants to do anything, he will need to file a claim with the rent committee. And then as part of the rent committee claim, obviously, that it would be the burden of proof will be on the landlord to then, pr- to then argue that somehow the contract has been renewed and therefore you have to pay for the year ahead. But I will tell you, it's a losing case also because the rent committee, even let's say if you moved out, uh, the rent committee will not grant uh, the landlord the claim for the full year because you have not had the benefit of the full year. So there might be some uh, some cost to compensate the landlord for early termination, but there certainly will not be a, um, a judgment for the full year of rent. And that is because the courts in the UAE, whenever they... Um, deal with the claims of compensation always require uh, actual proof of actual damages or actual loss and not some sort of speculative loss. So in this case, and I'm saying even if you prematurely terminated your contract, it, you would not be required to pay a full year's rent. But under the circumstances you've described, it's a much simpler case. So if I were you, I just I wouldn't worry about it and just let um, let the landlord do whatever he needs to do. And if he files a claim, then you can um, you can uh, um, you can challenge the, uh, that claim at that point in time and just make sure that you have copies of your SMSs on your other co- correspondences yeah. uh, to present. Does that reassure you, Han? Thanks a lot. That, thanks. That's really reassuring. Yeah, thank uh, you. Really great to have you on. Thank you very much for your question this evening. Um, that's probably a situation that quite a few people would like to hear clarified. So that was a good one because I think people are still under the impression that if they don't get a response to their notice that they've not given notice. And we talked about it the other week. Even WhatsApp messages can now be used in that situation. So you've got to keep everything that you send. Correct. And it's just uh, as a general comment, there is no requirement that the notice is accepted. And that applies in rental communications or in rental, rental context as well as in employment context. So often uh, we hear 
we hear uh, complaints or concerns about, well, we sub- uh, the company, for example, submitted a termination notice to an employee, but the employee uh, refused to sign it. There is no requirement in the law that that notice is signed or accepted. Uh, all the courts need to see is that the person was actually notified. All right. Uh, lots more questions coming in. Uh, we've only got about 20 minutes left before the end of the hour. Uh, this one asking, uh, we have a contract with a facilities management company for our villa. The security office community we live in is making it hard for our facility management to enter the community without their approval. So they will not let them enter to fix something in our house. Is that legal? It's a loaded question, unfortunately. It seems simple, but it's very loaded. Uh, so I would start with your community regulations because it may be, for example, that in your community regulations, uh, there is a, a provision that uh, requires uh, owners or occupants to seek permission from the security uh, or that you are only allowed to use uh, contractors from the security uh, company, which in and of itself is uh, suspect and questionable. Uh, but so I would start with that. And the chances are, and as I say that, and that's why I said it's a loaded question because even those community regulations, there's a, it's a question as to whether they're enforceable, and that is because they apply to the time when uh, the community is not in control of the owners' association, and we have not yet had any owners' associations that have formally or legally taken control of associations. So therefore, there's a question as to whether these regulations would even be applicable. Uh, but be it as it may, it's information is power. So at least start with that, so you know uh, where where you stand. Because if there is a writing to that effect. At least you can address your next um, your next course of action with that in mind. Uh, so, and th- that's one. The second one, and that is. Um uh, just find out from, ask the security offices on which basis they are refusing uh, to allow your contractors in. And uh, again, it's simpler, it's, it's easy to say, but in practical terms, if they don't respond to you, what, what options do you have left? Uh, so, and unfortunately, under such circumstances, the only two options you have left, is one is to go to court, and that's to go to court uh, against the security company, and it's not a very... Uh, you know, it's probably not a very uh, efficient um, and sort of a commercially prudent um, uh, strategy. Uh, the other option is just to work with them. And if, if, if all you need is that approval, then perhaps just apply for the approval uh, and just kind of work with the system. As I have run through those two options, I thought of another one. Depending on the, um, the security office, uh, you ask them for a trade license, and then you may be able to file a complaint against the particular company under the licensing authority that, um, that licenses them. So, for example, if they're a DED company, you can file a complaint with DED, uh, and perhaps they might be able to resolve that. We have heard, and, and we have actually ourselves, filed some complaints for clients with DED, uh, and that's a consumer protection branch, and they have been quite effective in, in the past. Um, so that's your other option. Few options there, and this is an interesting one, uh, Ludmilla. I've recently launched a business that I've been working on for some time. Yesterday, another local business started accusing us of plagiarism on all of our social media. This other business only has a Facebook page, and what they are doing amounts to slander. What do you suggest we do? Well, it's um, a great question. So there's several things in. I'm trying to decipher from the message whether there is a bit of a contradiction or at least understand the, the sort of nuances. So if the business, on the one, on the one hand, um, 
the listener did not put his name or her name um, to the SMS. But on the, on the one hand, you're saying that it's a local business. On the other hand, you're saying that the business only has Facebook page. Well, that suggests to me if there's only a Facebook page, it's, uh, it suggests to me there's no legal present, perhaps, um, for that entity in the UAE. And that would change the uh, the strategy that you may be able to pursue. So, Because if it's just a business that exists in basically a digital world and doesn't have any legal presence here, and that is is not incorporated here, then you, you may not be able to do as many things from legal perspective in the UAE, but there are other options you may be able to pursue. If, however, I'm misreading, and again, it's um, apologize, uh, but if, if what you're referring to, it's this business is a locally registered business, but for now, you don't, they're not doing anything else other than selling their services or whatever they're doing uh, through Facebook page, then you can file a complaint against them uh, in the UAE. And so where you can file for some, something like this uh, is slander and based on what you're saying, that if, if they're actually accusing you, uh, they're damaging your reputation in the digital domain, so that this would be a violation uh, of the cyber law. And uh, these violations in the UAE do carry criminal sanctions. So therefore, the starting point would be for you to file a case with the police. However, you need to uh, keep in mind that whenever you bring a claim against someone with the police, you need to have the details of that entity. In this case, if it's an entity, it would be a company of sorts. So you need to have at least a copy of their trade license because otherwise the police will not know who to pursue. Uh, or at least the 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 uh, the license and the number license number or at least some kind of details that the police will able to follow up on in order for them to bring a claim is it easy to find those details of this company if it's registered who it is who's behind it what's going on not easy at all and so the starting point would always be Again, that's a starting point, but let's say look at the DED website. Uh, they do have a directory of companies, and so at least you may be able to find by the name of the company. But the prob- problem is that most of the time companies have a trading name and they have the legal name. So there's a difference between, especially if this company only exists in sort of the Facebook world, it may the name under which it operates may be different from the registered name with the authorities. Be as it, be as it may, I would still start uh, with DED and see if you can find the name of the company with the DED. Once you find that, Sally, you still there's only a certain level of detail that is available to the public and the shareholders and there's a, you uh, and even the manager are not uh, are not publicly available so but at least you will have the name of the business and at least you know which authority is regulating them and there could be some other details that the police might find um, helpful uh, so and often what, what happens with the police these days they are unless it's a black and white criminal case uh, they may may first ask you to go to the prosecutor and and file the complaint with the prosecutor versus uh, starting with the police and it's the same process basically just have to make sure they bring the documents relevant uh, to show your case because but it because it is um, um, it it would be in the UAE it is a criminal matter Uh, so in the meantime what else can you do since your reputation sounds like is being damaged you could for example report this to Facebook and whoever else the other online providers that might be hosting uh, either this um, um, this page or this company um, Google for example they might come up on the Google search you you could also file a complaint with them and you know, do, those companies do claim at least to be responsive uh, to such complaints um, so that that's your other starting point with regards to a civil claim you may even be able to bring that but uh, for civil claim you need to um, have some sort of evidence that you have suffered damages so ultimately let's say if this continues on for longer you may even be able to file a, claim, a civil claim um, asking for compensation Lots more to come. We'll get to as many of your questions as uh, we can very, very shortly. We're also going to be talking about the importance of always reading your contract.
Sports. We want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook. Tweet at Dubai Eye 1038 FM. Or text in, of course, on 4001, which many of you have done, and we're going to whiz through as many of your questions as we can. Ludmila Yamalova is here, of course. But I want to quickly discuss a topic that you raised, uh, Ludmila, on the importance of always reading uh, contracts. Now, it's something you say pretty much every week when we talk about various situations on this this programme. But the subject's come up this week particularly because insurance is in the news, and you're working on a particular case uh, which pertains to uh, an insurance insurance contract and what can happen if you don't read uh, all of the T's and C's. Indeed. And so what happened here is that uh, we represent a client who is looking for, has retained us to help them uh, look for liability insurance. And send liability insurance in the event something goes wrong with the business, they, they want the insurance um, to come and basically pay, for example, for the value of the claim or to even represent uh, the company before a court. So it's very important because it, you know, you're talking about when business is taking a major hit. Uh, from elsewhere. So, and, um, so the insurance company actually sent us only a page of, um, sort of, of, of the, t- the terms and conditions. You can't even talk about term and conditions, but, but particulars. And so this is, this is the quote. And the, uh, the business we were looking at, it was looking for liability insurance globally. Um, because this is a global business, and it was very important for the business that the insurance coverage, um, is, is, is global. And that was our number one criterion for that reason. Uh, so the insurance company sent us the, uh, the, the one-page document that um, that is uh, that provides all the particulars of the insurance and said this is we have it for you and here is the plan and here's the coverage and it says global and you know, here are the prices and so we insisted on seeing the rest of the TNCs and that is the terms and conditions and encountered a very significant pushback they said it's just not done in the industry which is nonsensical uh, but we do hear these kind of um, uh, comments quite frequently from different in- industries as well but in this case they said they, they do not give the T's and C's, or they do not give the rest of the contract until you've basically accepted this and paid for it. Imagine, but that happens. Makes no sense. But it happens indeed. It's it's nonsensical, <laughs> but yet it happens a lot more often than than you would like to um, hear. And so in this case, we obviously because we, we've been retained to represent the company, so as lawyers, we can't accept that as as um, uh, as an answer. And so we pushed back. And when the uh, the rest of the agreement came through, in fact, um, lo and behold, there's a provision there on coverage, and it was only limited the UAE. So and you'd ask for global. And yes, we asked for global and the f- that first page, the first document that was sent to us, which we were required to sign, we were um, asked to, to sign and pay, it said it was the coverage was global, but the rest of the agreements of the coverage but is all, limited. That almost sounds fraudulent to me. Indeed, and I'm not saying it's actually done with that fraudulent intent, only because we see this practice quite quite often. So, for example, even in the in the real estate industry, how often do we know that when somebody wants to, I mean, at least in the past, it used to happen more often than now, uh, wanted to, somebody wanted to buy a property, they would go and buy first sign the reservation agreement, pay under that reservation agreement, and the reservation agreement is usually a page or your two pages at the best. And then they will receive the full sales and purchase agreement at a much later point. I mean, even we even had cases that uh, where that agreement come will come five years after, and um, and so and in that case, and when the agreement does come, often the terms are very different from what was in the ter- in the reservation agreement. For example, in terms of uh, handover, in terms of pricing, in terms of payments uh, schedules, and so on and so forth. So, what do you do at that point? And so we've seen this um, quite often, and this is why I just wanted to uh, highlight this particular story for the listeners, because you, my you know, my comment and my advice is just don't accept that as the normal practice, because it is not. Push uh, 
push back. When you're signing yeah. a legal document, you must have the full, uh, the full document, and that includes obviously the terms and conditions and everything else that you're signing. And especially since, and this this is the practice, and this is what also happened with us, you're being asked to sign this document and pay money, and only then you will receive the rest of the document. Whenever you hear something like this, it is nonsensical at, at every possible level, so don't agree to it and insist on seeing the full document. And don't sign anything, don't make any payments until you've seen. Is it clear sometimes, though, that it, it you are in fact only receiving, say, one page of the agreement or the contract when there are five pages? Or does it look like, do they make it look like this is the contract, it is only one page, and you sign it and you move on? Uh, it's 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 difficult to know to be honest with you because sometimes you'll send you'll get one document and it looks like this is the document and then you have five other documents and somehow link up to this very very document as well so it's not always easy to tell uh, and I will tell you from legal standpoint it's not to say that uh, actually that you will not be you, that you will not have an excuse or you a defense for having uh, for having uh, having been caught in a situation because in uh, in in court the the courts do look at the entirety of the situation and if you do not sign the document uh, you will not necessarily they will any kind of inconsistencies between the documents will be usually uh, charged against the drafting party and not you but who wants to get down that road Right. I mean, the point is here is that you want to you want to take preemptive measures so that you don't find yourself uh, down the line in court arguing which document should prevail. Yeah. You just want to know what you're buying. It's really a fair enough thing to ask for. Let's see if we can quick fire uh, through uh, a few of these questions. Lyudmila, we're rapidly running out of time as ever. Azim says, hi, I left my job a year ago, joined another company with a similar trade. Then someone told me that you can't work for three years in the same trade. And it's mentioned in my contract when I checked my previous contract it was mentioned in arabic only but not in the english version should i be worried uh, no in short no since we have to do a fire drill i'll be i'll be very fast and this is the same principle applies whenever you have inconsistency in in contracts the courts will always interpret that inconsistency uh in favor of the the non-drafting party so in this case if you're if the english version did not include this um, then it's not binding on you and in any event there is no such rule as a three-year uh non-competition in the uae it's all contractual and in in even if you have a contract um, that is clear the, the non-competition agreements are only enforceable if they are reasonable and narrowly tailored quick one michelle you took a phone call what was that yes yeah, salim got in t- touch he said that he is going to be renting his apartment to a company but the actual tenant that works for the company wants the tenancy contract to be in his Ten, the tenant's name is that allowed uh, well it's really up to the parties and that would be the parties would be the landlord and the company so obviously uh, if the tenant wants to uh, have the contract in their name so therefore there's a there's a termination of the previous contract and it's up to the landlord and the current landlord which uh, tenant that is which is the company as to whether they want to break that contract and then uh, and then have the new um, the new party which is the actual tenant but I will tell you when that happens then there is a novation or there's a new contract and therefore the landlord then um, can charge whatever other new rates and impose whatever other new terms on the uh, on the tenant because it's but that tenant it becomes a new party and therefore there's a new contract one very quick last one from Gilbert uh, he's asking about VAT we started off the conversation on that status of free zones is it clear not yet uh, no announcements um, as of now so we keep waiting 
Well, we do like to work you hard, Ludmilla. <laughs> well done for whizzing through those. <laughs> good to have, yeah, I always enjoy the challenge. Yeah, well, they do always challenge you with a really good mix of questions. Thanks, everyone, who sent one in this evening. And thanks, of course, to Ludmilla for answering all of them. That's uh, Ludmilla Yamalava, managing partner at HPL Yamalava and Plevka here with us every Monday on The Legal Hour. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.